Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. Welcome everyone. It's really a privilege to be here tonight. And to share the word of God with you, we're going to continue with our series through Colossians. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Vian. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a privilege to be here tonight and to share the word of God with you. Um, and like I said, we've been working through the book of Colossians. Interesting book, a very practical book as we are working through it. And just to quickly recap the first couple of sermons for us, and I said it this morning as well, you know, you might already start to feel a bit of an anxiousness, you know, this guy recapping takes a while. And now we're three sermons in. We only passed chapter one now. What's going to happen if we get to chapter four? And I quickly want to recap, you know, the previous four chapters. We're going to sit here till tomorrow morning and then we're going to start with the sermon. But to try and keep it nice and short, we looked at the beginning as Paul's writing to this church that he hasn't been to. The church in Colossians planted by Epaphras, one of the faithful ministers in Christ. A guy that went somewhere where Paul was busy ministering. He got saved there, heard the gospel message, went back to his hometown, shared the message with the people there, and so the church was born. And, church, and Paul is writing to this church, and we see a couple of things about the gospel in this first chapter that Paul's busy writing. And he makes the statement as we looked, that whenever we truly understand the true gospel, it immediately brings change in our lives. When we truly understand the true gospel, who Jesus is and what he has done. The moment we truly understand that, change happens. It changes our lives. And what does it produce? It produces faith, hope, and love. We've not ceased to give thanks to you since the day we've heard of your faith in Jesus, your love for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That's what the scripture says. Faith, hope, and love. And we ask the question, and when we look at that, are we people known for faith, hope, and love? When you walk past the mirror, do you look like a hopeful person? Do you look like someone that just received good news? You know, like a little boy waking up in the morning and his dad told him the previous day, we're going to go watch the rugby together, we're going to do something together. That face just lit up and there's an excitement because, man, we're going to do something. There's an expectation. I'm hopeful because something's going to happen. And that's true of the gospel because of this hope laid up for us in heaven. The fact that Jesus didn't only save us, but he's busy working in us right now, and he's going to come back for us one day, and all of this is going to be made new. Isn't that wonderful? To be people full of hope, known for a love for the saints, for God's people. Are we those type of people? And also we saw that not only does this thing happen immediately, but it always does this. He says, as in all over the world, it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you. It always does this. Wherever the gospel is fully proclaimed and fully understood, it brings change. And now that causes us to do some introspection. Has there been a time when the word of God impacted me in such a way that it brought about change? Because if not, then I haven't truly believed the true gospel. I've might heard the true gospel, but I haven't believed it. Or I've might heard the false gospel and believed that. But inevitably, it wouldn't have brought change. Only the true gospel truly believed. And not only does it bring change immediately, it continues to do so. Bearing fruit and increasing. The continuous tense. This continues. 
as we truly understand the true gospel. And like we said, what needs to happen for us to truly understand the gospel? We need to be faithful to the word, dependent upon the spirit. The true gospel fully proclaimed, but the spirit of God needs to come and bring a revelation. So we prayerfully read the word. That's why we pray before the service. That's why we pray on a Monday. And that's why we proclaim the word. Both is needed. Faithful to the word, dependent upon the spirit. And like we said, many times we maybe read through the Bible and we're just like, we have no idea what's going on here. I mean, it sounds nice. Maybe you can post it on Facebook or somewhere, but it seems encouraging. But if someone asks me, what now? How do we apply this? How does this look tomorrow morning? It's just, uh, I don't know. But it sounds nice. And it's because we don't sit still, pray, read, pray, read, pray. To spend time with God's word. It's like any from Shofar Joburg says. He says, yes, we must pray and fast, but many times we want to pray fast. <laughs> Not how it works. <laughs> we want to read fast. We need to slow down. Everything in this world is rushed, but we can rush nothing in Christianity. Nothing can happen quickly. You can't grow in prayer quickly. You can't read through the Bible quickly. You can't grow in Christian faith quickly. You can't mature quickly. Nothing happens quickly. Need to slow down, take it easy. But everything takes time as we are supposed to grow. And we saw this wonderful message why does everything change? Why does it bring about change and why does it continue to do so? Why? Because we need to be changed. That's the confronting part. We need to be changed. It says that we were delivered from the domain of darkness. The Greek word is socia, that means authority. We were under the authority of the evil one. Now we were brought over to the kingdom of light, to the beloved Son. And whom we have the forgiveness of sins. Beautiful. So when we were in the domain of darkness, it means we thought and we desired and we did as people of that kingdom did. Everything needs to change. And where we did the right thing, it was probably for the wrong reason. The wrong motive, the wrong desire. And many times when it comes to someone that has a testimony like mine, you know, actively doing a lot of wrong stuff, it's easy to kind of see, okay, yeah, it's a complete change that needs to happen in every area of life. But many times we grow up with dead religion and we did kind of the right things but never for the right reasons. To get something from God, maybe fearful because we don't want to go to hell. I mean, nobody wants to go to hell. Even the atheists don't want to go there. We just want to go to that nice place with the paves, paving mat of gold. Seems nice. But we did the right thing, but maybe for the wrong reason. So everything needs to change. The way we think, the way we desire, and therefore also the way we act. And that happens when we understand the message of the gospel. And then Maria beautifully shared for us who Jesus is, the preeminence of Christ. The one who is before all things, in all things, through all things. The one through whom all things exist and for whom we exist. We were created by God, we were created for God. And also in that passage, a very beautiful explanation of the gospel. We were alienated from God, separated from God. Nobody gets born in a relationship with God in this world. Alienated from God, separated. Hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he reconciled us through the body to present us holy and blameless before him. If we continue, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Beautiful. But again, a drastic change needs to take place. But beautiful, from that passage of scripture, we read that we were made by God and we were made for God. What does that mean? It means before we do anything, our life has meaning. Because we were created by God. 
And also the purpose assigned to us in life has meaning. Why? Because God gave the purpose. Doesn't matter what people think of it. You know, many times in the church we're like, we want one of those great callings. Not just that little average one. One of those great ones. The moves and the lights. And all of that. But then we look back to the garden, Adam and Eve. They were real content people. What was their job? They were gardeners. And I've never heard someone say in our modern life that, man, if I can just be a gardener, it will bring such fulfillment. And that's the thing that's lacking. I can stand there with my rake and my juice and just, oh. No. Because we think many times what we do gives significance to our lives. No, it's the one that assigned what we do to us. God gives the purpose. Isn't that beautiful? And then last week we looked at one of those Christianese phrases, some things we say many times, but we don't really understand what it means. Christ in us, the hope of glory. What does that mean? It means that God started our salvation and he filled us with himself to secure our salvation and he himself will come back for us one day. That is a sure salvation. That is a firm foundation. I mean, that gives reason to rejoice. Knowing that God started my salvation. He's busy working in me to continue it and he will come back for me one day. More sure than that, it cannot be. Amen. And out of thankfulness, what does that lead us to? It leads us to serve him how? Through Christ in us. By serving his people. That's why Paul rejoices in the suffering that he's going through for the sake of the church. Because he's suffering for the sake of Christ. It's his body. Beautiful. And now we're going to pick up where we left off. Colossians 1 from verse 28 to verse, chapter 2 verse 7. And we're going to speak about maturity. Yay. Yes? Yay. No. Mature in Christ. And as always, before we just dive in, I'm going to ask us a couple of questions. And the first question is, would you say that you are a mature Christian? Nice and easy. And obviously now bear in mind there's that humility thing, huh? So don't jump at it. Take some time. But are you a mature Christian? I'm going to ask us to raise our hand in just a moment to see what we answered. I'm <laughs> just making a joke. Maybe some of us in that moment thought okay, maybe a bit better change it. Maybe a half a hand. But are you a mature Christian? Really answer that for yourself. And now in light of what you just said, either yes or no, why did you say that? What makes you mature or not mature? Because the way we kind of thought of that or thought about ourselves, yeah, maybe yes because I don't or I do, or maybe no because I still do or I don't, gives us an indication of what we think maturity in Christ is. And maybe the next question is to make it a little external because sometimes when it's personal, it's difficult. But who would you say in your life, someone that you know, don't, always, don't pick me now, everybody, but who is a mature Christian? Just making a joke. But if you have to say someone else in your life that you know, who's a mature Christian? Why would you say that? What makes them mature? And 
And for many of us, we might have just realized that we don't actually know what Christian maturity is. We've never tried to define that. But yet we would say that we want to grow as Christians. Many times we say that because the Bible says that, so we kind of have to, and we're in church now, right? But it also exposes something that do we really want to grow? Because in every area of life that we really want to grow, we kind of have a goal. We kind of know, we define where we are working towards, how that's going to look like, and even how we are going to get there. And that's the second question. How do we mature as Christians? And yes, read your Bible, pray every day. You do that as well. But why? To do what? How does it work? You see, if we want to go and run the comrades or we want to go and do some physical sport, whatever the case might be, we know what the prerequisite is. We know what we're going to have to do. We know more or less in, in what time we're going to have to run that. We, we know where we are working towards. Nobody running the comrades just rocks up there and he just doesn't even know the distance. He's going to figure it out on the day and kind of see how this goes. I have flip-flops. I don't know if I need something else. Let's see if this works. No, you know. You're prepared. You know what's expected of you. Even when we study for a certain thing, we know that the content of this textbook and the additional reading and whatever, I need to master that in order to pass the test. I know what's expected. I know what I have to do. But interestingly enough, we struggle to define what maturity in Christ is. What are we working towards? How do I actually know if I'm growing? How do I define that? How does that happen? And one of the kind of beautiful things for me in the Christian sense in the New Testament that it gives to maturity is realized potential. Beautiful way to define it. There's a certain amount of potential that each one of us has and there's amount of that potential that's been realized and amount of it that hasn't been. And in two areas, character and ministry. We need to become like Christ. In which ways? In character and ministry. We need to be the way Jesus was. That's character. And many times when we wear that little, you know, what would Jesus do, bracelets, we are most of the time thinking about more what would he have been like. He's in a certain situation, confronted with something, what would Jesus have been like? He would have been forgiving, gracious, loving, kind, yet holy and righteous. That's what he would have been like. But what would Jesus do? That's ministry. What did Jesus do? Made disciples. So we need to grow in character and we need to grow in ministry. Both of those two things. So let's read through this passage of scripture and see what we can learn about Christian maturity. Colossians 1 verse 28 to 29. Him we proclaim, this is Jesus, Christ in us, the hope of glory. That was the previous verse. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Ludicia, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, 
as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Beautiful passage of scripture. And I said it this morning as well, I, I note that I say that every time of every passage of scripture, but rightly so. I don't think there's going to come a day where I'm like, oh, it's not a boring sticky. But let's see what it has to say in any case. Beautiful passage of scripture, so let's start at the top and work through it verse by verse. A couple of things to note here in the beginning. First, it says, him we proclaim. What does that mean? It means the proclamation of the gospel, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And how do they do this? Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's the same thing. The one is what they do, the other one is how they are doing it. That always happens. Whenever the gospel message is proclaimed, there's warning and there's teaching. Admonishing and teaching. Correction and instruction. That is how it is presented. Every time Christ is proclaimed, there's warning and there's teaching. Everyone with all wisdom, that is the purpose. That we might present everyone mature in Christ. And then Paul says, for this I toil, I struggle. He's doing something. He's putting in effort. But with all his energy, speaking about God's empowering grace, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now a couple of things to note, and if we understand this, man, this is going to minimize offense in the church to a different level. If we just grasp this, if something here clicks tonight. And the first thing is that nobody gets saved as mature Christians. Does that make sense? Nobody gets saved as mature Christians. Doesn't matter how long you've been alive, doesn't matter how much experience you have in the world, doesn't matter what you've achieved and what you've done and how much you've studied, doesn't matter what you've done, nobody gets saved as a mature Christian. We get saved as infants, as scripture says. Some of us, the day we got saved, might have had more knowledge about scripture growing up in a Christian culture, or less than others, Irrelevant, that helps, but that doesn't make us mature. Many times we make the mistake, specifically in the West, that our maturity is based upon what we know. That's not the truth. We are not what we know. We are what we eat. We know that. I'm just making a joke. We are what we continuously do. It flows. It actually shows us who we are. We are not what we do, but we do what we are. Inevitably, it flows from our beings. So what we continuously do will show us we truly are. Disciples of Jesus do what? What disciples of Jesus do? That's who they are. Children of God do what children of God do. That's who they are. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But we don't get saved as mature Christians. The person that knows a thousand verses but yet does not apply one. And the one that knows only one verse but is busy applying that one verse. Who's the more mature Christian? The one applying the one verse. Not necessarily about what we know. And again, we live in this intellectual age and we like to reason and debate with people. Many times when we win the most arguments, we think we are the most mature. Kind of just shows the opposite. In fact, scripture says when we only have knowledge but we don't have character, it puffs up, makes us prideful. Actually, very immature. and drives people away from God. But nobody gets born or saved a mature Christian. And Paul says there's things that we need to receive now to become mature. And what are those things? It's warning, in other words, correction. There's un, 
There's one other place in the New Testament where that specific Greek word comes up. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15. Speaking about if the people do not do what Scripture says, warn them. Speaking about correction, how your life is out of line with the Word of God. It's what that warning speaks about. We need to receive that warning, correction, and instruction. Knowledge, both things. Hey, you're not living as God expects of you to live. This is actually what you're supposed to do. And if this clicks, the moment we get saved, that actually has to happen a lot. It would make sense that that happens a lot. It would make sense that that happens frequently. Why? Because I've shifted from a different kingdom, the domain of darkness, and I've now moved to the kingdom of light. I'm starting to follow God. Obviously, certain things need to change in the way I act, the way I think, the way I desire. There's a change that needs to take place. And it wouldn't surprise me that every now and again someone comes to me and says, Hey Brown, that thing you're doing, we don't quite do it like that. When I go to my friends, I'm like, yes, I got lucky today. I was driving from Springs, the way to Sukuna. There's no speed cops ever on the N17. But surprise, surprise, today for some other reason, they were there. And I was, only, I was obviously in a righteous hurry, not an unrighteous one. I was speeding righteously for a good cause. And they caught me, going way beyond the speed limit. But luckily I had a hundred rand, so they let me go. And now as a Christian brother and sister, you're supposed to say what? Scripture says, Vian, I don't know if you know this, but God hates a bribe. It doesn't say he's wrong, he hates that. He dislikes it completely. You can't live that way. You've shifted kingdoms, my friend. We don't live that way anymore. And then I might try to justify and say, hey, but that's how this country works. We need to bribe everyone everywhere, you know, home affairs and all of the places. Otherwise, you get nothing done. It's so corrupt. You can say, yes, I know why. Because you are actually funding the corruption, my friend. It's when we bribe that we actually keep the corruption funded. You with me? We don't live like that anymore. Like, yes, bro, but if I didn't bribe them, then consequences. Yeah, that's how sin works. There's consequences. God is righteous. Just because you're a Christian, if you go into a yard that you're not supposed to go in and there's dogs, if they're going to bite you, it's going to hurt. It still works the same way. But we live differently now. You know what's so sad to me? There's two specific areas in life where we, for other, some other reason, don't get this. And the devastation caused by it, the hurt caused by it, the brokenness caused by it is devastating. Everything in life we were taught. You, you, you know that someone needed to teach you to go to the toilet. You know that, right? To tie your shoes, to put on your clothes. From grade one to matric, everything you studied, every sport you've played, everything you've done, someone taught you that in every area of life. And then there's two specific areas where we want to go, and this one we're going to figure out now. And what's those two areas? Marriage and raising kids. Man, and the devastation, the hurt caused by it. Not to allow the people of God to enter in, to guide, to give wisdom, to correct, and to instruct. And it's devastating when we look at the world around us. And we kind of have this weird perception about it as well. I remember me and Robin, we were having some conflict, and we heard about this guy called Wimpiet. He's a communication specialist, so he's really good with Christian communication. 
it's like normal communication, you just don't yell. And I'm just making a joke. But he's, he's a Christian guy and he's good with communication. And we go to Mpiet and at that time, Aubrey, he was still in Sukunda and he's my accountability partner when it comes to family matters. So he comes every now and again and asks me, hey Brown, family-wise, how's it going? Do you still like your wife? Does she still like you? You know, all of that stuff. He says, yeah, no, it's going well. We're going to see Wimpiet in the week to help us with some communication. We're going for counseling. And he says, what, bro, what's wrong? Is it all swear? It's like, no, it's not that bad. We're just going for someone to help us do this better. We can struggle on on our own if we want to, but we don't. There's a guy that knows how this works. We're going to go and see him. And we're glad we did. Because as we arrive there, Wimpiet informs us that we have a misunderstanding about the actual problem. He says, I'm a pastor at the time. Robin was the manager of Build It. So he says, you are a pastor, she's a manager. If you cannot communicate, it wouldn't make sense. You wouldn't be able to do your jobs. And he informed us that we communicate quite well. We just don't listen that well. Problem fixed. We could still be struggling with it now. But no, there's a guy that knows. Why not just go to him? Everything in life someone taught us. Why do we want to struggle? Why do we want to struggle? Same with our kids. So this we want to know. Now the question in light of this is, when was the last time that someone corrected you and you received that, thankfully? In humility, received the correction of someone. When was the last time that you saw that you misunderstood something and someone corrected you? They gave you instruction. And this is not just through the word proclaimed, it's also through the word studied, huh? When we read our Bibles. When was the last time you studied something, you read a passage of scripture and you went, shucks, my life does not align. I need to repent of this. I actually didn't know that. Now I'm informed. When was the last time that happened? Or was the other person always at fault? Someone corrects us these days. We just take offense and we move to the next church. And surprise, surprise, the people there are just... The same. All of the churches we've been to, they've offended us every time. But it isn't us. It's the people. No. You're unable to receive correction. You're unable to receive instruction. And if that is the case, if that has never happened, or if that has seldomly happened, you might have to do introspection whether you are actually saved or not. If you, if you moved to the new kingdom, if that really took place, you really placed your faith in Christ. Otherwise, we are just prideful. And in our dead religion, we will push unbelievers away from God. There was a couple of guys in scripture that did that quite well. Called the Pharisees. Unsaved, very prideful. But nobody can correct us. Even God himself standing in front of them. And there where we meet with believers, we do what? Bring division. Because every time someone warns us, or every time someone disagrees with us, we split. Because it cannot be that we are wrong, and it cannot be that we are misinformed, because we are perfect and we know everything. Just not the case. Timothy Keller says it well. If your God does not disagree with you, then you are just worshipping an idealized version of yourself. Think about that. We are sinners that came to salvation. We were lost and now we are found. Yes, there's a lot of things in our life out of line with the will of God. And every now and again, something and someone must bring correction. And if that doesn't happen, 
We're just following ourselves. Building a building by God that just suits our needs. We just read what we want to hear and when we read something that we don't like, we just justify. But it needs to happen often. And again, a sign of Christian maturity is not how often someone corrects you, but how you receive the correction. The person that only has a couple of visible areas that's out of line with God's word, but cannot receive the correction, is less mature than the one guy that just everything seems to be breaking breaking down, and every second week there needs to be a conversation. But every time he says, thanks for that. I didn't know. I repent and I align myself with God's word. That's maturity. Isn't that beautiful? So that's the first thing to note. And if we understand that, if that clicks, man, a lot of offense will just go away. Because that makes sense that that actually needs to happen if you want to mature in Christ. Receive correction and instruction. Secondly, thing that we need to note here in verse 29, the presence and the power of God always produces action. I mean, if I say the reverse, you'll just hear it doesn't sound right. The presence and the power of God produces passivity. That one doesn't sound nice. Doesn't sound right. Doesn't sound logical, huh? But the presence and the power of God always produces action. That's what Paul says. I'm laboring, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, but I'm doing it with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Who's that? Christ in me, the hope of glory. The Holy Spirit in me, producing something in me. Paul said at one stage, you worked harder than all of the other apostles. He surpassed them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God towards me. The grace of God towards me. But when the power and the grace and the presence of God comes, it always always produces action. You see, there's a couple of ways that we can summarize the gospel, the true gospel. One way is right, two ways are wrong. The one is Faith plus works equals salvation. That's wrong. That's not how the gospel works. It's not faith plus works. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot believe in Jesus and do a lot of stuff for him and then he saves us. But then there's faith is equal to salvation without works. That's also not the gospel. That's lawlessness. That's going around in our culture today. That is as if Jesus just came into society and told the human race, hey guys, you can continue in sin. I just want to let you know, I sorted you out, huh? Don't worry about that judgment thing. But you can just carry on your way. Just wanted to inform you, I sorted you out. That's not the gospel. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. Then there's faith is equal to salvation plus works. That's the gospel. Faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, produces salvation, but that salvation changes us. And out of thankfulness, we serve Him. That's the gospel. And the same thing is true here. We see that in this passage, that man and God work together when it comes to sanctification and growing in maturity. And many times we like to use extreme examples to make doctrines. Like what? The guy on the cross. Is indeed a perfect example to show us that we need to do nothing to be saved. And yes, we don't need to do anything to be saved, but salvation produces effort. We see this every time in Scripture. Nowhere does Scripture paint the picture about some guy getting saved and just being carried into heaven while he just relaxes. No, it's a race to run, it's a fight to fight. That's what Paul describes it as every single time. 
There was a man that got carried to Jesus, yes. But the moment he met Jesus, he got up and he started to walk himself. Amen. But even the guy on the cross, such a misinterpretation. C.H. Persian says it well. He says that guy didn't do nothing when he got saved. He did something. What did he do? He rebuked the other thief on the cross because he was mocking Jesus. So C.H. Persian said he didn't do nothing. He actually did all that he could because his hands were tied and his feet were tied. He could only use his mouth and he used his mouth. He did everything he could. May the same be said of us. Isn't that beautiful? But even there, grace and salvation produces action. That's how it works every single time. In this process of growing in maturity, we work with God. We work with God. Grace is a gift of God, but every man needs to believe for himself. Amen? We need to repent. We need to believe. But it's a gift of God. He enables us to do that. And yes, it gets interesting. Paul's going to say the same thing, but just in the reverse order. Meaning that not only do we need to receive correction and instruction, but we also need to give correction and instruction if we are to grow in maturity. Remember, he says he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. That's why he struggles. That's why he toils. Now, listen to verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Saying the same thing here. And for those at Ludicia and for all who have not seen me face to face, that, here's the purpose, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That verse 2, that's Christian maturity, summed up again there. He labors for Christian maturity, yet he struggles for it again, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach. In other words, when we are knit together and encouraged by love, we grow in the knowledge of God. Why? Because that's what love does. Love encourages. Love corrects. That's what love does. And again, one thing that we need to note is this happens together. People need to be involved. We receive correction and instruction from people. We give correction and instruction to people. That's why we have church. That's why we have small groups. Especially small groups. You know, we can come and pretend on a Sunday. We can also pretend in small group, but the more we get to know one another, the more difficult it gets. Specifically when you throw the kids into the mix. They don't hold back. And they brutally honest. I remember me and Robin went to visit people just after I got appointed by the church. And we enter the house and there's Christian music playing in the background. And you know, there's this atmosphere and everything is blessed and thanks and everything is just amazing. And we go and sit down to eat. And at one point, the little girl can't hold it anymore. And she actually asked, why are you so weird today? <laughs> They're just brutal. There's no pretending. They can't switch that thing on and off. They just are who they are. I know some of you are thinking, man, I'm not going to let my kids out of the house again. I don't know what they're going to reveal to the world out there. <laughs> but also we know there's not an exact representation. They also still need to get saved. Amen. By the grace of God, they hopefully will. But the more intimate we are with one another, the less pretending they are. And the deeper we get to know one another, the more we can correct and the more we can instruct. Same so with accountability groups, man. Then that gets really deep. 
And then there can be real instruction and real correction. If we want to be real with one another. We can pretend all the way, but no growth will take place. God cannot pretend the people we pretend to be. It cannot change the people we are pretending to be. It can only change the real us. We need to be real in order for there to be real change. But that's why we do it. We don't have small groups because we thought to ourselves, man, you must be lonely in the weeks. It's get together, swimming in the middle of the week as well. No, it's a biblical thing. Read in the book of Acts that they gathered in the temple and from house to house. And when they couldn't gather in the temple anymore in Solomon's Portugal, this big hall, and from house to house. And certain people say, no, you must have church only in a big place where everyone comes together. And other people say, no, we must have house churches. Scripture says both. Come together in big groups, you come together in small groups. Jesus had the 70 and the 120 disciples and the crowds that he ministered to, but he also had the 12. And then beyond the 12, he also had the three, Peter, James, and John. When he really needed to pray in the garden, he calls his three. He says, come pray with me. When he goes up the mountain, he calls the three, come up the mountain with me. We have our accountability groups, we have our small group, and we have our church. That's how God intends for it to be. That's where we grow. And then many times we read through a passage of scripture like this and we don't see correction or instruction anywhere. Like how do you get that out of this scripture? It just says that our hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. How's that instruction? How's that correction? Why? Because what has the culture around us taught us? What's love? Love is an emotional feeling that tolerates everything and that receives everything without questioning anything. That's not love. Tolerance is not a fruit of the Spirit. I don't know if you knew that. But in our age, we're supposed to be tolerant and just accept anything and you don't correct someone because their truth is their truth and their belief is their belief. Not so. That's not love. And in our culture, you can do and believe whatever you want, just don't do and believe anything Christian. Amen? Because that seems to be offensive. Whatever you want to be, whatever you want to say, just don't say anything Christian. Just don't do anything Christian. But that's not what love is. Love is not a feeling that tolerates everything. Love is a commitment to the well-being of believers. That's what love is. And not only to believers, but also to the unsaved. That's why we proclaim the message of the gospel. Why? Because we love them. Love speaks the truth. I mean, can you just imagine you see your friend or someone that you love doing something that you know is going to just cause a lot of hurt, a lot of devastation. And you want to tell me love is tolerating that and just allowing them to go ahead. No, that's not love. Love says, my friend, because I love you so much, what you are doing is going to cause so much hurt and so much pain. Don't do that. That is what love does. It corrects, it instructs. You want to love your wife, you want to love your kids, you correct and you instruct them. You want to love the people around you, you correct and you instruct them. Later in the same book, and we're going to look at that at the end, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger lest they become discouraged. Ephesians paints the picture a little bit more clear. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. You want to love your kids, you correct them and you discipline them. And you instruct them in the way of the Lord. That's what love does. Amen. And again, now we need to realize that whenever someone comes and corrects us, what's that? It's love. They are loving me the best way they possibly can. By correcting me. 
When someone comes and instructs me and says, hey, the thing you believe is not actually true, this is actually correct. They are loving me the best way they possibly can. That is what love does. Look at what the scripture says in chapter 3 verse 16. It speaks about a church that knows who Jesus is, that knows what Jesus has done. Same book. Chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? A mature church is not one where there's no correction taking place, but it's one that correction takes place often and people receive it in humility and give it in love. Because what does the verses just before this one say? And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect humility and let the peace of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. This is what love does. Are with me? And yes, people have, and yes, people will do it in the wrong way and for the wrong reasons and out of the wrong place. But can we, while we strive towards maturity, receive it as an act of love? Can we do that? When correction comes, when instruction comes. And also to be aware, it's not comfortable. Just knowing that's a loving thing doesn't make it comfortable. It's still not lack it to be wrong. But can we receive that love in humility that it can cause us to grow? And not only to receive it, but also to give it. One of the saddest things we've seen in church, people come into church and they go through all of the encounters and they do the Bible school and they've been here a couple of years and then all of a sudden they come to a certain place and they say, no, we feel stagnant in our faith. We, we, we don't feel like we're growing anymore. We need a mentor or a new course or a new thing to teach us something. And scripture says, no, the problem is not you receiving something. The problem is your unwillingness to give it now. You need to teach others now. That's where the growth lies. Hebrews 5 verse 11. The writer writes to the church and he says, we want to speak to you about the priestly order of Melchizedek, which Jesus is now the priestly order of. And about this we have much to say, but you have become dull of hearing. By this time, you should have been able to instruct others in the faith. But you need someone to again come and explain to you the basic principles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. In other words, you are immature in your faith. Why? Because you are unable to give instruction. A mature Christian is able to give instruction. To give correction. The mature receive correction and instruction in humility. And they give correction and instruction out of love. That's mature Christianity. And both is needed. And now we see those people coming into church and they go to church, to church, to church, to church, doing all of the courses till they eventually end up where? In some strange place where they no longer focus on the gospel because there's a new teaching that we need to learn. Like the false teachers did in the church in Colossae. Some higher mystery, some higher knowledge that we need to attain to. We need to go and read the Apocrypha, what's, what's the apocrypha in, in English? Huh? Apocrypha. The apocrypha. The books that's supposed to be in the Bible, but what mysteriously, you know, all of that. And then they go into all of that, and it's this sect, and it's that sect. Why? Because now it's not just about Jesus and the gospel anymore. We need to have some different teaching. No, that's not the point. It's not you need to learn something else, you need to learn someone else. Or teach them. Learning them is a bit violent. 
Don't learn someone. I'd rather teach them. And we see it here. Paul says it here in verse 3 and 4. <clears throat> in whom, speaking about Jesus, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible argument. It reminds Jesus. The lack of growth isn't because you're not learning something new. It's because you're not teaching new people. That's where your next growth step lies. Whenever you go to a place or teaching or something and it's not Jesus and it's not gospel, doesn't matter. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus. It remains about Jesus. The gospel is not the A, B, and C to Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. It's everything. It's always about Jesus. It's always about the gospel. You never move past that. You just grow in deeper revelation of that. Are you with me? And also, not only do we need to teach others, but we need to be in community. I don't know if you have a, a friend that's not part of a church, but claims to be a Christian. And you'll see them every third or fourth month, they have some new teaching, some new thing. Now it's the Hebrew roots. Now they get to do the festivals again. Or now it's this thing. Or now it's that thing. Or now it's the apocrypha. Every now and again, something new. Why? Because they don't have the love of the community around them to correct and to instruct where it's necessary. Fellowship is a means of grace. It's what God gave us so that we can endure in the faith. I mean, but now again, we've heard this. We know that we're supposed to make disciples. We know that we are supposed to evangelize, but some of us have no desire whatsoever to start doing it. And some of us have started to do it a couple of times already, but it doesn't seem to last. It doesn't seem to bear fruit. Every now and again, we're tired, we're depleted, and we need to start over. Why? Because we're not doing it as Paul said, with all his might that he powerfully works in us. We're trying to do it on our own. And we see the key here beautifully in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And the first thing that we need to note here is that you cannot walk in him if you have never received him as Lord. You cannot walk in Christ if you've never received him. You cannot be a Christian if you have never surrendered. Like my wife so beautifully says, we many times want to jump past salvation to sanctification. We want to start being better Christians without ever asking the questions, are we Christians to start off with? Have I ever surrendered to Christ? Have there ever been a moment where the gospel so impacted me that it brought about a change in my life, in not only my thinking, but also my desires and also my actions? Because if that hasn't happened, then I'm not saved. And the answer is not to go and change yourself. It's simply to say, Lord Jesus, help. Lord Jesus, save. Lord, come and have your way. I surrender to you. That's the gospel. And allow him to come and change. Not only how we think, but also how we feel, also how we act. As we look at Jesus and his finished work on the cross. Amen. And again, secondly, we see here that God and man works together. So walk in him. Begin to walk. You need to take action. Some of us have experienced the desires that God has brought about in our hearts and the passions that he stirred, but we haven't begun to walk. You need to walk in him. You need to take action. It works together. Both need to work. You need to start walking. And with all your might and toil, this kind of, the, the Afrikaans says, wandel. 
Sounds nice, huh? Paul has this toil and the struggle. We have a vandal. We have a walk. It seems like a walk in the garden or a walk in the beach. But scripture is just implying action here. Doesn't mean one of the walks that we think about. Just means action, a way of life. You need to start moving. And if you are a mature Christian, again, it will be noted by what? A toil, a struggle, all of your energy for the well-being of God's people. Is that us? Sometimes we might, if it suits us, might if, if it's pleasing to us, might, if we have time, we might do something nice or we might be there for the well-being of other believers. But all our energy, all our toil, all our struggles, we might evangelize, we might share the gospel, we might tell them someone Jesus loves them, if there's enough time, if it's a suitable opportunity, if we feel like it that day. That's not what this scripture speaks about. With all our power, with all our might, as he powerfully works in us. I like the Afrikaans, it says, and oorenstemming met die kracht wat hy in my werk, in accordance with the power that he works in me. My effort is related to the effort that Jesus puts in. That's everything. Willfully working to see the people around me. The only eternal thing that this life has to offer. Nothing else is eternal except the people around us. To see them steadfast and firm in the faith. With all my energy. And now verse point number three. Just to quickly end off for us. How do we do this? Because this is one of those Christianese sayings. So walk in him. What does that mean? Walk by the Spirit. What does that mean? Must I go and sit upon a mountain while I start to like trance off and then walk in the Spirit? How do, what does it mean? What is it, how does this work? We need to ask and answer those questions. And there's two words that gives us the definition here. And that's the word as and the word so. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. What does that mean? As dependent and helpless and hopeless you were that first day that you called upon his name. Be so now. As much you acknowledge the dependency that you had on God that first day when you asked him to save you. Do that now. As passionate as you were just to sit at the feet of Jesus when you got saved. Do that now. As everything was just about Jesus, not about extra things when we got saved. Do that now. As you received Jesus, so walk in him. Don't start to think that we add something. Don't start to think that we get wise or we get mighty or we get something special and we cannot do it on our own. No, as dependent as we were the first day. Be so dependent now. And sit at his feet now. In every area of life. You see, many times we kind of want to compartmentalize God. We'll put the switch on on a Sunday, maybe on a Wednesday when we go to small group. But when we go to work, or when we're with family, there's no spiritual need there. I'm not dependent upon Christ then. And that's why we miss God completely. We cannot put it on and off. If we think we can compartmentalize God, we don't have him at all. If we think we can follow the Spirit sometimes, we don't follow him at all. It's not how it works. Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's everything or nothing. We can't put it on and off. Some of us have the misconception that when we got saved, Jesus only needed to come and fix the spiritual thing, but the rest of life we kind of have that down. No, in every area. To be so dependent, to be so prayerful, to consider Christ in all of life. Some of us compartmentalize it to a certain amount of time in the morning. 
I'm praying now, I'm reading my Bible now. And if God wants to say something, he needs to do it now because I'm not going to be attentive later. I switch it off then. I don't walk in him. I only come to him sometimes. It's not how it works. Fully dependent upon God in every area of life. And for some of us, we need to develop a habit of praying constantly. It's like uh, Smith Wigglesworth says. He said he rarely prays for more than half an hour, but he never goes more than an half an hour without praying. Constantly praying as we go somewhere, as we go wake the kids, as we go put them to bed, as we drive to work, as we go to the meeting, as we start a task. Constantly praying, dependent in him, walking in him. Galatians 5.25 says, as we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Step by step. Step by step. Be dependent upon him. That's why Paul's ministry was so lasting. Why? Because what did he do? How does this walking in him look like for Paul? We read it in chapter 1 verse 9. Since the day we've heard of it, we've not stopped praying for you. We're always praying for you. That's why we're always laboring for you. Constantly praying for the church. Constantly caring for the church. Constantly praying for the unsaved. Constantly trying to reach the unsaved. Because we're walking in him with the power that he supplies. And some of us may be in ministry or whatever. Every now and again we're tired and we burnt out. Then we need to take a break. Jesus says, come to me all who are labor and heavy laden and I will give you rest. What does that imply? If you are tired, you are not with Jesus. Does that make sense? If he says, come to me and I will give you rest. If you don't have rest, you're not with Jesus. You're not walking in him. We may be going to him sometimes and then running away again quickly, trying to go in on our own efforts, and then we tired again. No. As we receive them, so walk in him. And how will our faith look like then? Rooted, built up, established, constantly growing. Our efforts don't go like this. It goes like this. Constantly growing. Rooted, built up, established. And again, what overflows? Thanksgiving. Not bitterness, not criticism, not being critical. Thankfulness. Thank you, Jesus, that I can labor for you. Thank you, Jesus, that I can walk in you. So as we received Jesus, let us walk in him. What does that mean? Let's be dependent upon him in every area of life to supply the grace we need so that we can do what pleases him. As we are devoted to receive correction and instruction in humility and to give correction and instruction in humility, because that is Christian maturity. Amen? Let's stand together and pray tonight.